and welcome back to the India podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm Molly McNamee, host of the Indie. To celebrate this week, we're talking about the 2020 Olympics with this year's gold medalist, Paige Hoschild from the U.S. women's water polo team. Santa Barbara born and raised, Paige has been an international competitor since 2015 and a part of Team USA since 2017. I'm so happy you're here, Paige. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So I guess let's start from the beginning. When did you get involved in water polo? Yeah, so growing up, I played a lot of sports. I actually joined swim team when I was pretty young, and it was something I was pretty good at. And I did junior lifeguards in the summers, and I met a lot of girls who played water polo, and my parents had heard a lot of good things about the water polo program in Santa Barbara. So I got a little tired of swimming, just staring at a black line on the bottom of the pool going back and forth. So I thought that since I was pretty decent at it, we thought maybe water polo would be a better option for me. So tried it out when I was about eight or nine years old. I joined Santa Barbara Water Polo Club, the 10 and under team, and kind of took off from there. So when you were just starting out, did you have a feeling that you were going to move up the ranks and compete professionally? Or did you just really like it and wanted to keep playing? Honestly, I didn't. I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed I became really close with a lot of girls on my team. And so I just had a lot of fun doing it. And I think as I got older, I I got better and better, obviously, which was really exciting. And I think in it was my freshman or sophomore year of high school, I tried out for ODP, which was a little big development program, which I was on the 16 and under, I tried out for the 16 and under national team. And I had some success there. I started making teams and rosters as the final roster got cut smaller and smaller. And I ended up making the final roster. And I was like, wow, this is something that I'm actually, I guess, pretty good at. Because that was me the first time I was really in direct comparison with girls from around the whole country. So making that was kind of an eye opener for me. And then I guess from there, my national team career kind of took off and my international experience just took off from there. So before Tokyo, what were some of your favorite international or national competitions that you played in? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I think for me in 2017 World Championships, it was in Budapest, Hungary. That was the first really big tournament I went to. I'd been to a few World League Superfinals and other tournaments that are also super important, but World Championships in 2017 was really cool and it's it was all aquatic so there was also not it wasn't just a water polo tournament there was swimmers from around the world and divers and synchronized swimmers so it was all aquatic so it was really cool just to be a part of something so big and see so many famous athletes that really the first time that I was in an environment like that and that was really cool for me and Budapest was a beautiful city and water polo is really big in Hungary there was an amazing venue and it was jam-packed full of people So that one was really cool for me. And then also world championships in 2019 in Guangzhou, South Korea was really cool as well. So those, I think before Tokyo were two of my favorites, but 2017 was definitely a big one for me. So you recently arrived back from the Tokyo Olympic Games. Can you take me through your first few matches there? Were you more nervous once you settled in? Were you more excited to play and start working with your team again? I think if anything... Our whole team was super, super excited for our first game. Obviously, that was something we've been training for and looking forward to for so long. So I think being in 
the Olympic Village and being at the venue, like it created a lot of nerves, but all of us just wanted to get into the pool and start playing and really kind of just get to what we came there to do. That was what we're most comfortable doing. So that was what we were all looking forward to is just hopping in the pool and getting that first game out of the way. But obviously there's nerves. It's a pretty big deal. So it was pretty stressful, especially for me and a few of my other teammates who were first time Olympians. But once you're in the pool and you're with the team, it's just like what we do every single day for we've what we've done every single day for the past several years. So it was it was exciting. It was really fun. So what's the team dynamic like? I know you said that there are some first time Olympians and were there kind of some training for the older girls that they show you the ropes or was it more of a unified experience? Yeah. So I am the youngest on the team and I just turned 22 day before yesterday. Um, and so happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So I was 21 when I was at the Olympics and the oldest girl on our team is 31. So we have a pretty wide age range and everyone's somewhere in between there. And I think when I first joined the team in 2017, I was 17 years old. And so that was really intimidating for me. But I think that our older girls on the team did such a good job, like growing up playing water polo. These were girls I watched on TV. I watched in the Olympics. I was like, oh my gosh, they're my teammates. Like that was super scary for me. I didn't want to step on their toes. I didn't want to make anyone angry. Like these are these girls growing up were some of my idols and now I'm playing next to them. So it was definitely intimidating when I first joined the team, but everyone on the team was so welcoming. And also we just have this mutual respect. Like when you join the team, we all have one mission. So if you work hard, you play hard and compete every day and you're the nice person, like you're going to be welcomed onto the team. So I think the transition was definitely intimidating at first, but it got easier and easier. And then by the end, or like, honestly, through the whole five years, like these girls became some of my best friends in the whole world. So it was a really special experience to share with people that you care so much about. And as far as learning from the older girls was a big thing for me um, going into the Olympics. We have two girls who were already two-time Olympians before Tokyo. A lot of returning Olympians who played in 2016. Um, and I think there was only four or five of us that were first-time Olympians. So it was definitely important for me going into the Olympics to try to talk to them about their experiences, about what to expect, about how to prepare, things like that. And so they were super helpful in that regard and have been for the past five years of this process. So yeah, it was really, it was really nice having girls with so much experience on the team. So what was your favorite and least favorite part about living in the Olympic Village? I know it was kind of a different year considering the strict COVID guidelines. I, okay. So my, I would say my favorite part as a Team USA athlete, we're really lucky because we have so many athletes that we essentially have a whole building to ourselves in the village. Other countries have only a handful of athletes. So there's like a different country, different athletes from around the world on every floor. But since there's so many Team USA athletes, we had a whole building to ourselves. And it was really cool for me when just going in the elevators, seeing other athletes from other sports. And it was like being a part of a team. Like, obviously, I'm on the water polo team, but it was being part of Team USA. It was just a team on top of the team. And so it was really cool just going in the elevator. It seemed like everyone was like, Oh, congrats on your win yesterday. Everyone was so on top of every all the updates on everyone competing. And so 
we just walking around in the building it seemed like everyone was like oh congrats on your win versus Russia like this was awesome everyone was watching and just being a part of that it was just such a fun energy in our building and everyone was always supporting each other wanted the best for each other and talking to other athletes and watching them and then getting to see them when they come back from their games and their competitions and getting to congratulate them and ask them how it went like being a part of that was really cool and it was a really special experience and and when we won um, after the finals a bunch of people came out onto the balcony and we were walking back from the buses and everyone's on the balcony clapping and cheering for us and it just it was really special to be a part of that bigger team that team USA vibe was really really fun so take me through the final match in Tokyo against Spain. What were you thinking? You finally made it. You knew you were going to be on the podium. And it was just gold or silver at this point. Yeah, that game was the one I was hands down the most nervous for. I think I was more excited going into game one. More, I was more excited than I was nervous. But by the time the finals came around, I woke up. I was like sick to my stomach all day. I was so nervous. And I was even talking to friends and family. And they were like, oh, you like you're going to get a medal or some people had that mentality. I was like, that's not what we came here for. We didn't come just to get any color medal. Like we came for gold. Like we weren't satisfied with just knowing we were going to be on the podium. So for us, it was a huge deal. And I think everyone on our team was really nervous. But again, like I mentioned before, it was nice having girls who had been in that position before. We have two two-time Olympic gold medalists on our team. So they have a lot of experience in that department. So it was nice talking to them, trying to have get some advice and ease the nerves. But Spain was also a really talented team. We played them a few months before the Olympics in the one goal game. We had a lot of scrimmages versus them and trainings versus them. And so it was definitely a nerve-wracking um, feeling going in versus the Spanish team because they are so talented. But we did a lot of scouting. We did a lot of video. We knew the team super well from previous games and competitions versus them. So we were, there was definitely a little bit of confidence there, but obviously nerves, no doubt. But going into the game, I think we came ready to play and from the first whistle, and I think that kind of shook them immediately. And we kind of took off from the beginning which was really fun and really exciting and I mean winning by that much just made the whole game that much sweeter and it was really fun it was a really fun game to play with my team so what can we expect from you now in the future of the sport maybe Olympics 2024 more international games you know yeah so I actually moved back into school on Monday so I'm going to be competing with USC kind of like how we usually do so I'm going to be playing at USC and then in the summers and a few competitions leading up to the summers as well. We start playing with the national team. But as of now, it's only been about a week, week and a half since we've been back. So there hasn't been any conversation yet about when we're meeting back. He's going to give us a little breather. But considering with the postponement of the Olympics, we're already one year closer than we would have been if it was in 2020. So things are definitely going to pick up a little sooner than in previous quads, I would assume, but I do expect it's hard to, I mean, you can never promise anything, but, um, I do hope and expect to play on the national team for the next few years as well. And I think 2024 is, is the goal. Um, so hopefully if I'm lucky enough, I can be there in Paris and yeah, just kind of playing for USC, playing for the national team um, over the next few years. And I'm excited. In closing, I guess, why would you recommend people to pick up water polo? What's your favorite thing about the sport? 
I think water polo is a really unique sport and it's obviously very physically taxing and I think just like the mental and physical aspects of the game it's always changing it's super fast paced and for me one of my favorite things is navigating the game and the speed of the game and with my teammates and just kind of one of my favorite things is when we're all on the same page we're all clicking and just there's there's a flow through the game. It's it's a really unique sport and it's provided me with so many opportunities to travel. I've met so many people. I've experienced so many cool things through the sport and especially coming out of Santa Barbara. I think Santa Barbara Water Polo does a great job as far as the coaches for the youth athletes and the community around water polo in Santa Barbara is something that's really special. And I've had some like some of my best friends in the entire world or people that I played with on my 10 and under team. So I think it's just the relationships also on top of, I really enjoy the sport. It's really fun. It's really challenging mentally and physically, but also just the relationships and experiences that water polo have provided me are just invaluable and I'm going to be forever thankful for it's really changed my life. So 10 out of 10 would recommend for anyone who has kids who are looking for a new sport or looking to just try something out for fun themselves. It's, it's a great experience. Well, thank you so much, Paige, for talking with me about not only your Tokyo 2020 Olympic experience, but your entire career in water polo. It was awesome having you on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. So now I'm here with Ryan P. Cruz, staff reporter with The Independent, talking about the Wheelie Boys, a group of teenagers who ride around State Street on bikes and not the motorcycle kind, which is a very important thing to note regarding this story. So hi, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me again. So can you tell me a bit about who the Wheelie Boys are and where they started? Yeah, so so during the pandemic is kind of when this cropped up. Kids were kind of at home, they they were bored, and this, this group of kids kind of just uh, they, I mean, this has kind of been a, a bike culture in town. To give a quick background, uh, Santa Barbara has a deep bike culture of going on cruises and kind of just, it's a great biking town with the hills and, and all the views. So kind of in that, this this group of, of teenagers has taken to these big wheeled SE bikes, which are these 26 inch kind of is the size they use. And they, they're going around town and they're popping these wheelies. They're being very aggressive. They're, they're really confident in their abilities and, it, and it's, it shows and they do all these tricks and combinations. And it's really cool to see. And yeah, so I kind of just hung out with them and kind of got their story. So what did you learn about them? I know they're somewhat of a controversial group in Santa Barbara simply because of some of the incidents that happened. But what is their take on the bike movement that's happening on State Street? Well, like first thing they always say is they're just trying to have fun and that they're out there kind of getting their energy out. And I talked with kind of a, a older guy in, in the bike industry. His name's Feliciano and he runs SE Bikes Familia in Santa Barbara, kind of an Instagram page. And it's a positive thing for them. And, and they don't really listen too much to all that noise. They say they really just want to have fun and they're out there. And the way they see it, like people get mad because they see them out there and they're taking over kind of and kind of taking their space. And I kind of talk about that in the story, how these these kids are kind of left out of conversations when it comes to city council or, or city decisions about bike lanes and about public safety and bikes. A lot of decisions are made thinking about pedestrians and a lot about cars. And a lot of people that are vocal are criticizing them and saying they're too aggressive. They're getting really close to people. And there have been incidents, but a lot of the incidents were older people hassling these teenagers on bikes and, and 
if there's a fight, I, I mean, the, the older person's kind of the responsible one in that situation, but they're, they're really kind of ignoring that, this, the noise to them. So what is interesting to you about the dynamic of the group and the inner workings? Were they all friends before? Was it just a thing that people show up? How do people become a part of this young group? I mean, that's the, that's the great thing. They're from all different schools, different parts of town. And maybe if it weren't for these bikes, they, they wouldn't have hung out, but they see each other. They, they follow each other on Instagram and they follow people from Santa Cruz, from Ventura, San Francisco. They, and they go to these rides out of town and they, and they meet each other and they find this hobby. Like when I was young, growing up, it's skateboarding, it's bicycling, it's all this stuff that you do with your friends and you just kind of push each other and to just hang out with them and just see them kind of have fun and push each other and, and like, see, oh, he did that trick. Let me try to do this one. And that, that's just kind of a joy to see kind of young teenagers and especially a lot of them are, are Mexican-American teens and, you know, for them to find a place and something that has them really happy to do, that's just cool to see. Was there anything else that you'd like to add regarding the Wheelie Boys? I mean, one thing that I, I kind of learned while researching this story is, is that there's a lot of things that, that have to do with bike safety that you kind of have to stay up to date with. There's, there's a lot of places in Europe and a lot of places throughout the country in California that are really upgrading the way they do bike lanes, the way they do uh, bike safety and, and giving them a space to, to do their thing. And I think Santa Barbara has been historically a really strong biking community and the bicyclist voice should be heard when, when these decisions come up. So I'd like to see uh, more bike friendly lanes and, and things like that in town. Who knows where they'd be in five, 10 years. They might be in college, you know? So this is kind of a special time for their teenagers. And it's weird that during the pandemic, like everything shut down, but they found this like community. And that, that was really special to see. Definitely. I know a lot of this episode kind of focused on things that happened during 2020. It is our 20th episode of the Indie. So it's always nice to hear that people were still getting out there and enjoying the sunshine when we all kind of thought the only safe place to be was inside but that's awesome thanks for speaking with me ryan yeah thank you for having me again now i'm here with paula muñoz small business owner and student at sbcc discussing how she first began making salsas for her brand sabor de paulita hi can you tell me a bit about why you started making salsa it seems like it was quite a serendipitous moment yeah hi molly thanks for having me on the podcast today i actually had no intentions on starting particularly like a salsa business, but I, I've always wanted my own business. But when COVID started, I was a, a full-time student at City College for uh, getting my biomedical to become a dental hygienist. When it closed down, I took on the responsibility of caring for my grandfather who has dementia. And during that time, I got a little bored and <laughs> I, uh, found some curiosity in the kitchen and just started cooking up some sauces for food for my chicken. And that's just how it started. You know, it tasted really good. And I'm like, well, maybe it can become something, you know, like a salsa business. So that's when I decided, you know, my dad's coworkers are the perfect people to get feedback from because they like that. So they love barbecue. They love salsa. And when I would give out samples, they would give me feedback, like honestly, and then I would work on it. So I did that for like six months, getting honest feedback from everybody. So how did you come up with the name Sabor du Palita? What does it mean to you to be starting this small business under your name? 
Well, initially it was going to be Paulita Salsas, but I think someone else has that. So me and my boyfriend were like, mm, what, what else can it be? And I'm like, Sabor de Paulita. And it makes sense because I put my own like twist to things and I like to change it up a little bit. So it's still authentic Mexican salsa, but with my kick. So where do you see yourself going with the salsa brand? What kind of salsas have you already begun kind of mastering? I have my quemada in mild, medium, and ghost pepper. So everyone can enjoy it. And then I also have my verde in mild and medium. And I'm currently working on my hot sauce. So where can people buy your salsa locally now? I sell at Tri-Counties. That's the first store that I was ever in. And I've been doing really well there. I'm the best seller. I'm also in Chapala Market on Milpas and Valley Fresh in Solvang. I'm also in Gladden and Sons in Galita. And why do you think your salsa is special? Not only because it kind of was, you know, developed in a really hard time during COVID, but is there anything that you as a small business owner would like to say about why your salsa is different? I use traditional Mexican chiles and I roast everything. I put my own twist to it and I try to bring what we make at home to the stores. That was my goal. Like, well, people have a hard time finding good salsa right at stores. Or I always hear complaints like you can never find anything authentic. It's commercialized. It's just tomato sauce. And I was just like, well, people are tired of this commercialized salsa. Why don't I just bring something to their home that's from my home that's authentic and solve the problem? I've been really busy with business. I, I didn't expect it to like take off the way it has. And so like, I'm really grateful for the local support is like amazing in Santa Barbara. And it's the best place to start a small business. Um, but I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work other than salsa. I'm, I'm going to school. I'm trying to like better myself for the business. So I'm, I'm trying to do the best I can. Well, I've loved speaking with you, Paula, and I definitely will have to pick up some of my own and try my own. You know, I really love, I love salsa too. So it's nice to hear of another small business that I can support in Santa Barbara. So thanks for speaking with me. Yeah, thanks, Molly. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.